This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Let's get Joseph Newberger in here, Global News Radio's legal expert with Newberger and Partners, and how you uh, make your way through these cases to lend them some air of uh, finality or credibility. Joseph, how are you doing this afternoon? John, I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm good, but I'm uh, kind of confused here. I mean, in the case of, let's start with Jacob Hogard from Headley uh, yep. on these sex charges. You know, he claims it was consensual. And I probably should know this by now because there have been a litany of these kinds of cases, you know, dating back to Harvey Weinstein and the whole Me Too thing. And we'll get to Weinstein's story in a moment. But uh, yeah. how do you determine, uh, you know, whether there's enough to go to trial on? Where's the threshold to be met there? And okay. uh, then following up on that by proving the allegations. Okay, so a preliminary inquiry, this is a very good question. So a preliminary inquiry in Canada is a hearing before a judge where a judge does not have the jurisdiction or the ability to judge the credibility of witnesses. So um, when it is used in a case like this, you may have one or both complainants testify. And the reality is, as long as the complainants testify relatively in accordance with their statements, saying that the intimate contact with the accused was non-consensual and they give the background, the judge can't decide whether the person is telling the truth or not, even though there may be substantial probing cross-examination by the accused lawyer, the credibility or reliability of the witnesses are no, are not a matter that the judge can make a determination on. So the judge would find very easily that there is sufficient evidence to move forward. And the test is actually a very low threshold. Is there some evidence uh, with the jury properly instructed, could they return a verdict of guilty? And so you take the evidence at its highest. But the benefit of a preliminary inquiry is for a defense lawyer to ask certain questions, which may not be obvious with the statements of the complainants, and put to the witnesses certain facts that will try and bring this into a different light, in more in line with the defense uh, that they want to run at trial. So there can be tremendous value for an accused and the lawyer of the accused to run a preliminary inquiry. In other words, they would challenge these accusers. They'll challenge them, but there may be aspects of their evidence with with missing pieces of information. So um, how did the evening start? Where did they go? What did they do? Was the complainant engaged in activity with the accused such that they would have a belief that there was consent? So there may be a lot of information that leaves gaps in their statement that you could not otherwise get the filler for those gaps, but for a cross-examination and a preliminary inquiry. And so uh, the judge rules on this, unless it can be dismissed outright for being, you know, so beyond the pale, uh, he, as you say, the threshold is rather low, would send it to trial. Right. It's really very hard on a preliminary inquiry to discharge somebody on a sex assault unless the complainant's Uh, really state that what they said was not true, um, and so they resile from their allegation. But as long as they maintain that any sexual contact was without consent, a judge is duty-bound to send it to trial. And so uh, it's going to trial by judge and jury. Uh, I know we've talked about this in the past. I mean, what's the strategy there? Well, sometimes, you know, you make certain decisions uh, where you think the judge or jury Uh, might be better for a hearing. You know, in some cases, in sex assault cases, you may want, you know, a panel, frankly, that has, you know, a seven to five split between women and men um, of a particular age and knowledge such that they're able to assess the evidence in a certain way that you think 
would be more beneficial to your client than a judge. And we live in a slightly different era now. So I think both judge trials, which are a judge alone or judge and jury, is a very good way to proceed. But one sort of thought is that a jury is not always necessarily uh, thinking the same way as a judge might. And so they may react much more on impulse or on a, uh, on a gut feeling about the veracity of a witness's evidence. And if something about their evidence really strikes them as not being true, a juror may be more likely to dismiss the evidence of that person outright, and that can inert to the benefit of the accused. So sometimes jury trials uh, tend to be more beneficial for an accused. What if the accused is somebody of profile in this case, a celebrity, a, a rocker, Jacob Hogard? Does yeah. that hurt or help him? In this day and age, I don't think it helps at all. Um, you know, we all know sort of what the style of somebody in a rock band is and, and how they can be a target, yes, for people uh, who maybe want to take advantage of them, but also they live a certain lifestyle, and so it can it can hurt or it can benefit them. But I really think now, given what has happened both in Hollywood and in Canada now, we've transcended, you know, sort of the aura of a person who's a celebrity and really just look at the facts to determine if somebody did obtain uh, sexual contact without consent. So I don't think it, it helps much anymore. Um, and in some respects, I think it can be quite negative for an accused. And so they may want to judge a lone trial so that that type of emotion doesn't play out in a jury. Interesting you say that. Uh, Joseph Newberg is with us, Global News Radio's legal expert. The Harvey Weinstein case, for example, uh, it's yeah. going to trial, finally, uh, delayed uh, numerous times because he keeps firing his lawyers. He's on his third yeah. set of defense lawyers, including uh, one who's a woman out of Chicago, uh, rather renowned for being uh, tough. She doesn't subscribe to uh, the Me Too movement, believe it or not, describes her gender as an asset and said her look is, quote, carefully calibrated to convey both strength and femininity, and she can get away with a lot more in a courtroom cross-examining a female than a male lawyer does. Uh, Do you believe that to be the case? Not in Canada. Maybe in the United States, you know, maybe some juries will be, you know, more swayed by female cross-examining. But God forbid if you're in Canada and you're a female or a male lawyer and you're trying to cross the boundary of what's acceptable cross-examination, um, you're going to be rebuked by the judge, and frankly, a jury or a judge will just draw a negative sort of feeling about you, and that will not help your client. Cross-examination in cases has to be really fairly sophisticated and intelligent, not based on boundaries or disdain for a movement. This is about cross-examining a witness on their story, the plausibility, the inconsistencies, and then marshalling along your client's version of events. If this is to be used as a ruse to try and attack the Me Too movement, I don't think that'll be successful, but who knows? And Mr. Weinstein may have been looking for a lawyer who will share a view that he just wants to attack this whole Me Me Too movement and use that as sort of a fulcrum or an anchor for his defense at trial. Well, you know, she goes on to say uh, a male lawyer may be an excellent lawyer, but if he goes at that woman with the same venom that I do, he looks like a bully. If I do it, nobody even bats an eyelash, and it's been very effective. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a marketing ploy. Oh, <laughs> you know, you know, you okay. know. That's how you market yourself as a lawyer, and you say, "I'm a woman; I can get away with more." But 
I think judges and juries are much smarter than that. Well, yeah, and finally, to punctuate that point, Gloria Allred, who's a renowned uh, lawyer who's, you know, represented victims in these cases, including the Me Too, uh, early cases, I guess, against Harvey Weinstein, says a New York jury will be turned off by that tactic. But it remains... To, yeah, well, it remains to be seen. Now, you know, the other interesting one, uh, this again has to do with somebody of power and influence being charged with all kinds of allegations of sexual impropriety, especially with minors. This is Jeffrey Epstein at a so-called pedophile island just off St. Thomas in the Caribbean where he had it all rigged up and uh, would uh, have these girls come over there and uh, he would, you know, take liberties and all the rest. Interestingly, uh, and this is going to be obviously litigated, I don't know how this is going to play out, but uh, many people who work with Epstein told the Associated Press this week that they'd signed long non-disclosure agreements, refused to talk. At this point, could they be compelled to talk and break that non-disclosure? Absolutely. I mean, this is about a criminal offense. It's about criminal conduct and exploitation. And so you cannot sign an agreement that would keep you quiet about that in the criminal context. If there's a civil lawsuit and somebody's suing about sexual harassment or sexual assault and they reach a settlement, that settlement can be based on a non-admission of guilt and a confidentiality agreement. But if there's an investigation and then a trial witnesses to any type of criminal conduct can be subpoenaed and a judge can have the uh, confidentiality agreement pierced and just have the witnesses testify. I mean, I don't see those agreements holding up in court. Finally, Joseph, got to ask, because uh, Danny was mentioning a story at the top of the hour on the news about two lads, nine and ten, and this goes back to 1978-79. Uh, so we're looking at, I don't know, uh, 40 years Yeah, that they uh, allege they were uh, assaulted indecently by a teacher who, I guess, had kind of commuted between Toronto and Prince Edward Island. You go back 40 years, how difficult is something like that to prove when you've got 9- and 10-year-olds at the time? Well, okay, it's, uh, it's challenging for both sides. I mean, historical sexual assault cases are very challenging because um, people's memory uh, will be highly inaccurate with respect to many of the circumstances surrounding the alleged assaults, but but they may in fact remember specific things. But when you attack it on cross-examination, um, you know, one, one tactic and what we do know about the mind and, and memory is that over time, people tend to remember things sometimes differently and conflate facts. And that can lead to a tremendous amount of um, inconsistency in their evidence. And I think it's much more a hurdle for the Crown to overcome historical sexual assault allegations. But that being said, we now flip it because there's case law from our courts that says, you know, if it's a 10-year-old victim at the time or complainant, we assess their evidence slightly different and uh, we don't ascribe to them the same type of standard of accuracy or, or memory that we would have of an adult. And we're also living in a different time now where we are seeing more historical allegations come out and that the uh, notion of the courts is to accommodate uh, those types of allegations and assess them in a slightly different light uh, than uh, than we did maybe about 10 or 15 years ago. And so I think we're seeing a bit of the pendulum still sw- still swinging in the direction of this movement. And that may really pose more of a problem for a defense uh, than we would have experienced 10 or 15 years ago. 
How about this is a problem for the defense? R. Kelly, uh, again, the yeah. rapper, you know, he seems like it's a, a serial sexual abuse uh, case, one case after another after another. Does that harm him knowing that there's a litany of these accusations that are sort of, you know, uh, a string baggage that he's carrying forward? So, uh, you know, one particular case, maybe the sixth in line, isn't judged solely on its own merits? Would it be influenced by the previous five? Yeah, it's a great question because if you have you know, four or five complainants with very similar allegations to the point that they're strikingly similar. Certainly in Canada, we can bring an application or the Crown can to call similar act evidence. And so you can call those other complainants and testify, and then they support each other's allegations and you run it together, essentially. The United States has similar evidentiary rules. And so the more complainants that come out, uh, the greater the difficulty it is for an individual to try and defend against it, much like you saw with Cosby, for example. Mm. Um, On the other side, the United States has a very heavy-handed habit of overcharging individuals and taking various aspects of similar allegations and laying further charges later on as a result of their investigation. So you're seeing a tremendous amount of duplicity in uh, charges in the United States, unlike Canada. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.